Sandy W. is in the windy city of Chicago, hanging out with all the his fellow hoity-toity senior pastors, maybe eating some good pizza in Chicago. Uh, glad to be with you and uh, appreciate very much the good singing. I was telling Dan Whipple, you know, we got Robert Sutton gone, we don't have a pianist, and we've got me. So this morning is the JV team. We've got the JV team in. We're going to do the best that we can. Uh, I want to start out by just uh, noting that it's good at times to get various perspectives, different perspectives on the Old Testament. Somebody sent this to me a couple weeks ago, a kid's version of the story of the Bible. thought you might find this interesting. First, the Egyptians were all drowned in the desert. Afterward, Moses went up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Amendments. The first commandment was when Eve told Adam to eat the apple. The seventh commandment is thou shalt not admit adultery. I like this one. Moses died before he ever reached Canada. Then Joshua led the Hebrews in the battle of Jeritol. This might get me into trouble, this next one. The Jews were a proud people, and throughout history, they had trouble with unsympathetic genitals. Send your letters to swilson at 2pc.org. David was a king, uh, was a Hebrew king, skilled at playing the liar. He fought the Finkelsteins, a race of people who lived in biblical times. That's a very creative kid. Solomon, one of David's sons, had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. Ouch, ouch. Now, if you're new to the Bible, if you're new to the Christian faith, let me just be quick to say, those are a little off. It was just a little off today. But uh, we're devoting ourselves to uh, the book of Malachi. And if you brought your Bible, I hope you did, uh, go ahead and turn to Malachi chapter 3. And uh, while you're turning there, let me just commend uh, you for being such a faithful student of uh, the minor prophets. You think about it, in some ways, the job, the, uh, the assignment that God gave to these minor prophets was a difficult assignment. They were uh, told to bring a message of judgment against the people, and it was often a lot of confrontation. For the most part, men don't like confrontation. We run in the opposite direction. But each week, you have devoted yourselves to being faithful and being here. Uh, The Amen team thought maybe it would be good to print up some t-shirts for this group. They look something like this. I survived the minor prophets, you know. I mean, if the job of a minor prophet is difficult, uh, it's also been difficult for us just kind of coming here every week and hearing uh, God speak a word of correction into the lives of his people in the antiquity past. And so the, the list seemed to get longer and longer in all these offenses that God had against his people. Look at this list. God used the prophets to confront, that's your first fill-in, uh, corrupt motives, adultery, sorcery, greed, deception, idolatry, spiritual, spiritual desertion, Indifference to spiritual things. 
And one of the one of the takeaways, and Sandy is just masterful in his ability to do this, is to help us not just look in the rearview mirror of church history and say, you know, long ago, God's people struggled with these things. But maybe the harder work, maybe the more difficult and honest work is to say, you know, the same type of darkness, the same sin pattern, the same level of rebellion and spiritual indifference and all those those same things are are very much resident in your life and mine. Which is to say that the the spiritual drift and the darkness that is in the hearts of God's people wasn't that's not in the past tense. It's very much in the present tense. Got home late last night and uh my wife my wife was watching um Dateline NBC, and maybe you've seen it. It's like a series, I guess, uh, of uh, Internet predators. And they'll stake out a house, and, you know, guys will come to a house thinking that they're going to have sex with a 14-year-old girl. And much to their surprise, you know, they've got the TV cameras and the whole thing has just exploded. You think, man, how, how can people get that far? Maybe you saw the same article that I so I actually had to reread it twice because I, I couldn't comprehend it. That uh, a couple is, is being charged, teenage couple, just had a baby. And uh, the charge was that uh, the father of this child raped in the hospital his one day old daughter. I think that's just the epitome of darkness. How much darker can it be? And maybe as you look in the, the darkness that I'm describing and then the darkness in your heart, you're like, man, I, I'm looking real good compared to those folk. But let me just tell you something. You know, what, what we have seen is that there is brokenness and sin and rebellion and wickedness in the deepest parts of who we are that we cannot fix on our own. And so we look to heaven and we say, Jesus, will you help us? Deliver us from ourselves. Give us grace. Give us power. Give us, give us the ability to change those, those things that we could never change on our own. Guys, that's what we're talking about this morning in this great text. Uh, we're, we're looking at Malachi 3, and we're looking at verses 13 to 18. And uh, my prayer is that God's going to let, let us see the historical significance of these verses that will understand what the prophet is saying in his time, and then with God's help to draw some, some bridges of application so that we understand not just what it meant for them, but what it meant, means for us and how we live this out in our, in our daily lives. So this is Malachi 3. I'm going to be reading 13 down to 18. You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord, yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper and even those who challenge God escape. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other and the Lord listened and heard a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. 
They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will see again the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. All right, we're in our outline. We're looking at Roman numeral number one, harsh words spoken. Verses 14 to 15. We're looking here at A. A deals with this issue of spiritual desertion. God says, I have heard what you're saying about me. I don't like it. It's a lot of talk in the airwaves today. A lot of commentary and editorials being written about what the government is is doing in terms of our private conversation. How much do they know? Am I on the list? Are they recording things that I've said? It makes all of us very uncomfortable. Most all of us here, at one time or another, we're having a conversation with somebody, and um, somebody else overheard that conversation. Maybe it caused a few problems. I'll tell you an example from my own life. I was in high school. And uh, being the opportunist that I was, I was actually dating uh, two girls at the same time, which was kind of fun for me. Uh, and I, the, 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 uh, the thing I was trying to pull off is I didn't want either of them to know that I was dating somebody else. I wanted each of them to think that I was exclusively theirs and we had a great relationship. It's good to point out here, this is before I became a Christian, so... Um, I had, I had no work of the Holy Spirit in my life, no conviction. And I was really doing pretty well. I was talking uh, to this one girl, her, her name was Beth, on the phone. My parents had a call waiting system on the phone. And so I'm talking to Beth, and I hear the prompt, click, click. And I say, Beth, uh, let me get back to you. Hold on one second. The other line's clicking, and I get back, and it's Kathy on the other line. She's the one I really was excited about talking to. She said, hey, Kathy, hold on just a second. got to get off the other line. I'll come right back to you. Click, click. Beth, listen, it's somebody from my mom, and I really need to go. I'll talk to you later. Have a great day. Click, click, and I started right in. Kathy, I've just been thinking about you all day. I can't wait to see you. When can I come pick you up? There was this very awkward pause on the phone. And then I heard this. It's Beth! You jerk! You know? She said some other things that I can't say uh, on tape. I already said genitals. I think that's my, that's my chip for the day. It was not good. That, I'll just tell you that it really simplified my dating life significantly at that point. It really did. Here's the deal. God says, I've been listening. I've been listening to what you've been saying about me. And I don't like it. I don't like what, I, what I've been hearing. We saw this last week as God confronted his people for their lack of, of generosity. They were hoarding gifts, uh, the blessings that God had given to them. They were hoarding those things, keeping it for themselves. They were robbing God of what was rightfully his. And uh, as God confronted them through the prophet Malachi... They, they just did the little, the little shuffle. What, me? me? Uh, robbing from God? I don't know what you're talking about. The people do the same thing here. 
And you just need to know that that tendency, especially as men, to kind of shuffle and not to accept responsibility, goes all the way back to the garden. You know the story. God created Adam and Eve. He says, here's the deal. I have made this beautiful place. It's called paradise, this garden for you to enjoy. Every imaginable tree, every fruit and vegetable, it's, it's all yours. Enjoy it. Eat of it. Drink of it. Just one thing. Just one tree. There's a tree in the middle of the garden called the tree of knowledge of good and of evil. Just stay away from that tree. Everything else is yours to enjoy. And it's like God turns his back, and as soon as he turns his back, Adam and Eve, they just make a beeline. Where do they make a beeline for? Right for the tree. And they eat of the fruit, and sin enters the human condition. Their eyes are opened. They saw they were naked. They felt shame. They hid from each other. And and God comes along to confront Adam and Eve, and you know exactly what Adam said. I think this is uh, Genesis 2.17. What? Me? That woman you gave me, it's her fault. And it just speaks to the dynamic. I see it in my own life, and I see it as men who come through my life. It is so difficult for us to take responsibility for our own actions. We play dumb. And because of that, we are, we are capable of avoiding all kinds of destructive stuff in our lives. And uh, I, I, I read a story, and this is actually a true story. I think it happened in Tennessee. But it just brackets the fact that we will go to unbelievable lengths to keep from owning the bad decisions and the consequences that we have made. This guy had been... Uh, at the bar, he had way too many drinks, and he was driving home, which is an unbelievably dangerous and stupid thing to do. And his worst fear became a reality. He was, uh, he was all over the road. A cop saw him, pulled him over, and as the cop is walking to his car, all those thoughts, and some of you have been in that situation, and, you know, you're getting, your life is flashing before your eyes. You're thinking about, oh, my gosh, this, is, this ain't good. And the cop has him roll down the window, and immediately he smells the smell of booze, and he says, you need to get out of the car. The cop is just ready to give him kind of the, the portable breathalyzer test. And right then, at that moment, right on the other side of the highway, there's this horrific crash. So the cop says to him, listen, don't move. Don't go anywhere. I'm going to check on that. I'm coming right back. Don't move. So the cop goes checks on what's going on. Across the street, as soon as he's leaving, the, the, the inebriated guy is, is standing there thinking, man, this is a gift from heaven. So he gets in the car, and he drives home, puts his car in the garage, puts the car in the garage, closes the door, says to his wife, listen, I don't feel very good. If anybody comes asking for me, tell them I've been sick in bed all day. About a half an hour later, the cop knocks on the door. Wife stays right on theme. And some of you know what it's like to be in an alcoholic home and know all the, the layers of dysfunction and, and enabling that go on. He's been in bed. He's been sick all day. Cop says, I'd like to see him. Goes back to the back of the bedroom. Same script. You know, please, I've been sick all day. Nope, I was just standing with you. 
you need to come with me to the garage. They walk out to the garage. This is true as far, enough, as far as I know. They open the door, and there in the garage is the police car. Still running with the blue lights flashing. Which, again, just brackets the fact that the, the human capacity, the human capacity to overlook sin is staggering. It's staggering. At the end of the day, here's the, here's the reality about us. Truth is, we don't really want to know. We don't want to know what sin is doing to our souls. We don't want to know how our sin and our rebellion is affecting people around us, our, our, our wife, our children, our grandkids, our, our witness. We don't, we don't want to know. We don't have to face. We don't want to have to face the truth. I call it strategic avoidance. That's what you see going on with these people. Who, me? What? Harsh words, God? These words from scholar Abraham Herschel are just so helpful. Look at these on your outline. The shallowness of our moral comprehension, the incapacity to sense the depth of misery caused by our own failure is a simple fact of fallen humanity, which no explanation can justify or hide because events that horribly and that horrified and appalled the prophets are an everyday occurrence in our world all around us, and we don't want to know, and we don't want to hear, and we don't want to see it. And we don't want anybody to tell us about human misery or injustice because it might disturb our comfort. We get used to our world like you get used to wearing a watch. After a while, like you get used to stuff that you've never fixed around your house. After a while, you just don't notice it anymore. Strategic avoidance. I tell you somebody who noticed. Malachi. I tell you somebody who noticed. God himself. God says, I I see what's going on. I, I know your hearts. It's time to come out of hiding. It's time to admit the hard and messy truth about your life. I love these words from C.S. Lewis, who says, you know, Sin, it promises more and more, and it gives less and less. And in the end, it promises everything, and it gives nothing. I look at this in my own pastoral ministry and my, and my work with, with people. I'm sort of an endless stream of people who are coming through my life, and they're caught up in various addictions, and whether that's alcohol, or whether that's gambling, or whether that's food, or whether that's exercise, though I don't think that fits any of you. Or maybe internet pornography. Or maybe an illicit relationship. Deep down in their soul, they know it's destroying them. But instead of doing the hard work, instead of facing that and, and, and going in a different direction, all they're doing is trying to do a little shuffle, just trying, trying to economize that. And what I find all too often is that, listen, that people are more concerned, more fearful of being found out than they are with getting help. 
And I'm just going to say it. It is no mistake that you are here this morning to hear these words because I am talking to some of you right now. And there is a particular pattern in your life that is a runaway desire that is destructive. It's causing all sorts of havoc in your life. And you're doing exactly what these people in Malachi 3 are doing. What? Me? Problem? And maybe what you need to do this morning is to say, you know what? God, thank you. Thanks for that word. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to face that. And maybe for you, facing it means to actually share that burden with somebody at your table before you leave as a means of accountability and prayer support. Maybe for you, it's on the way to the office to call uh, this church or uh, the church that you worship at and, and make an appointment with the pastor. Or maybe it's talking to a trusted Christian friend. Or maybe it's, it's getting with a Christian counselor. What I, what, I, what I see here is that the, the people of God were, were just unwilling to deal with the brokenness in them. And God just continues to confront and confront and confront. He's doing that for some of us today. B, spiritual deflection. Here in Malachi, God confronts this people, not just for their spiritual desertion, but how they attempt to deflect responsibility and act as if they were helpless victims. Look at verse 14. This is, this is God speaking. You have said it's futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out His commands? In other words, God, it doesn't, it, at the end of the day, it doesn't really make that much sense for me to stay devoted to you. Because I don't see I don't I don't see your divine incentive plan really being worked out in my life. We've looked at this in weeks past, Psalm 73. This is exactly what David is dealing with in Psalm 73. And you can see this in your outline, Psalm 73 verse 3. David says, "I envy the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, and this is how he describes them in verse 4, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human wills. You hear that, and I would imagine many of you have a particular name or face that is coming to your mind. You look at your friends, you look at your co-workers, you look at your business associates, they wait until the last minute. They lie, they cut corners, they are unethical, and yet those are the guys who seem to get the deal closed, who have the consistent numbers, and who are always, always on the top with their sales. And to make matters worse, just to kind of rub salt in your wound, they even brag about it. Man, I pulled that one off. Man, I'm good. I am, I am so slick. I amaze myself. One author put it this way. I really like this. He says, these are people who are stumbling around in a drunken stupor in the gambling casinos of life, and every time they roll the dice, it's 7 or 11. You know anybody like that? Men who lie through their teeth, and yet they're the ones that get the sale. They're the ones that get the promotion. They're the ones that buy the house in Destin. They're the one with the new Mercedes. They're the one with the club membership. 
And the psalmist and Malachi, on behalf of, they, they looked to heaven and they basically said, God, watch with that. And he sums up, David sums up the whole tension here in verse, in uh, Psalm 73, verses 12 and 13. Look at this. This is how the wicked are. Always carefree. They are increasing in wealth. And here's his real issue. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. Here I am, living with integrity, trying to keep my heart right before God. Why bother? I'm a chump. I'm just a spiritual chump. Sounds painfully familiar to Malachi 3.14. Back to Malachi. He says, it's futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? Verse 15. Evildoers prosper. Those who challenge God escape. See, from from a limited earthly perspective, all of that seems really unjust. And I know that some of you, uh, you find yourself in that place right now. That sense of, of disconnect. You're trying to keep your, your heart and your hands and your nose clean. You're trying to honor the Lord. You're trying to serve Him faithfully. But it doesn't really seem to pay off. You feel like your nickname should be Job right now. This is how I put it in your notes. The man of integrity, he gets his tax refund and takes his wife out for a Wendy's hamburger. Nothing wrong with Wendy's. The guy who has no love or fear for God, he cashes his income tax refund and he goes out and buys a new plasma screen TV. You know what, God, that ain't right. Something wrong with that. And I love it. I love it that Malachi doesn't stop there. He brings all of that tension, all of that confusion, that unresolved picture of of God's justice and His mercy and the way that's played out in God's people. He brings it all before us and then He coaches us on what to do next. I'm glad He didn't stop there. Look at how this feeds right into verse 15. God's people learn to offer heartfelt Praise. Look at the righteous response of those who humbly submit to God. Verse 16 begins with these words. Then those who feared the Lord. Malachi says there was a group in the midst of God's people, even though they didn't know what God was up to, even though they didn't understand his ways, even though things weren't all reconciled and tied up in a, in a really neat box for them, even though there were a lot of unanswered questions, Malachi says there were some who were courageous enough to hold on to their core belief and conviction that God was in control and that God could be trusted. I'll tell you why I think that's important. It's important because I think when you're in the midst of that kind of struggle, that the evil one, in a real sinister way, kind of creeps into your life and he just begins to create a sense of doubt. As if God is a, a million miles away, preoccupied with trying to 
control the affairs of the cosmos and he's forgotten about you. Maybe you've seen that commercial. I think it's for a credit card company where this kind of overweight, slackered angel is supposed to follow this guy around. But the angel has like ADD problem or something and just continues to get distracted. And so this guy is running into all sorts of problems, all sorts of trouble because this angel is not doing his job. Let me tell you something. I think that is the picture that the evil one wants you to have when you're in the midst of difficulty. That God really, he's, he's away. He's, 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 uh, he's preoccupied. He's doing other things. And that what God really needs is help from you on running your life. Guys, that's exactly wrong. See, the, the lesson we're getting here is that there is tremendous victory in just humbling ourselves before God. Acknowledging that He is God and, and we're not. And that His character, His purposes, His heart for us is good. In the midst of all this uncertainty, Malachi says there were some who feared the Lord. John Piper comments on this word fear that appears in this verse. And this is what he says. To fear the Lord is to tremble at the thought of offending Him by unbelief and disobedience. It is the feeling that God is not to be trifled with. It is the very opposite of the attitude of the people in verses 13 through 15. Which is to say, these people came to their senses. Instead of harsh words, instead of indicting God for not caring and for not bringing justice for his people, the people humbled themselves before God and they feared him and they had a, a, a proper respect and awe of him. That's the first step. When you feel like everything is kind of caving in around you, remember God, remember his character. And this feeds in to the next phrase. This is so rich in verse 16. Those who feared the Lord talked with each other. Let me tell you something. That phrase is packed full of meaning for us today. If things are not going the way that you'd hoped they'd go, if you're in the midst of a time of discouragement and, uh, and defeat, and you're feeling desperate, there are two things that you've got to hold on to. Number one, you've got to hold on to the character of God. You've got to hold on to the fact that He is sovereign and good and that He is absolutely committed to you. To live with a proper level of of reverent fear of His greatness, His power, and His glory. Secondly, remember the role of other godly men in your life who will help to press this and other important truths about the Christian faith into your life so you won't forget it. Some of the challenges that uh, I have faced really just these past few years, just difficulty with my spine and some other issues that have just kind of kept me on the fly, I am more convinced than ever in my life how much I need men to walk with me to speak truth to me, to be there to comfort me, and to box me upside of the head when I need that too. I absolutely, desperately need that in my life. Here's my question this morning. Do you have somebody like that in your life? Somebody who will tell you the truth? Someone 
that you will tell the truth to? Relay some interesting findings about this whole dynamic of of, uh, relationships. Edward Harwell, senior lecturer at the Harvard Medical School, uh, writes in a recent book that for most people, he says, the two most powerful experiences in life are achieving and connecting. He says most of what grabs our attention, commands our energy, falls into these two categories. Connecting, he says, has to do with our relational world. Things like falling in love, forming a deep friendship, hearing words of affection and affirmation from a parent or a child. That's connecting, he says. Achieving has to do with the world of our accomplishments. Winning a contest, pursuing a successful career, realizing a difficult, uh, difficult goal. And his basic premise is this, is that we now are in a society that is, is uh, increasingly devoted, and he would say even obsessed with, achieving. And we are increasingly bankrupt and impoverished when it comes to connecting relationships. I think he's absolutely right. More and more these days, we are living in an automated, electronic depersonalized world. It is easier and easier in the culture in which we live to live without ever being known. It's an article uh, written some years ago. and The title of the article was The Friendless American Male. And some of you here this morning, you know, You may have a contact list in your computer that is filled with names and addresses and information. But here's the deal. You don't have one friend. You don't have one other man who knows you deeply and knows what you struggle with. And it should be said that achieving is not a bad thing. Achieving for the right reasons done in the right way is good. But I've been thinking about this as I prepared for this morning. I've never known a man who spent his whole life achieving, piling up a long list of honors, a lot of real estate, great portfolio, but who did it all at the expense of connecting in real relationships. I've never known a man who made that decision who was glad that he did. It's been said that at the bedside when somebody's dying, and I've been there a lot, you'll never hear this phrase. I wish I would have worked more. I've never known a man who made that decision to skim on his most important relationships, whoever at the end of his life experienced joy. And on the same token, I've really never known a man who made the decision to connect in a deep level in meaningful relationships, to give and to have given, to love and to laugh and to dance and, and to share life. I've never known a man who did that, who at the end of his life ever regretted it. And while it may be said of that guy, you know, by worldly standards, by somebody else's ladder, he wasn't very high on the rungs. But that guy lived life well. He was, he was a great success in what really matters most. God says in the first page of the book of Genesis, 
God says, you know, it's, it's not good for man to be alone. We tend to think about that mostly in terms of relationship in marriage. That God wants everybody to be married, which is not the case. It's a statement not so much about marriage as it is about, about relationship. That God has made us to be relational creatures. It is the dream of God that we enjoy deep level connection with other people. And a writer named Larry Crabb, who formed so much of my thinking related to relationships, wrote a masterful book called Connecting, which I would commend to you as a good summer read. He puts it this way. He said, the idea is this. When two people connect, when their being intersect closely, something is poured out to one and into the other that has the power to heal the soul of its deepest wounds and to restore it to health. The one who receives experiences the joy of being healed. The one who gives knows the even greater joy of being used to heal. Something good is in the heart of each of God's children that is more powerful than everything bad. Isn't that a powerful statement? It's there waiting to be released, to work its magic, but it rarely happens. And I tell you, I think that that last sentence is just kind of haunting to me. It's there, ready to be released, ready to work its magic. But he says it, it rarely happens. It's interesting, one of the most famous research projects ever done on relationships was actually called the Almeda County Study. It was done by a Harvard social scientist. It was done over a nine-year period. It was done in a little area. 7,000 people participated, and it was in this area of Almeda County, California. They found, this is very interesting, they found that the most isolated people were three times more likely to die than the most relationally connected people. They discovered that people who had bad health habits, smoking, poor eating habits, habits, obesity, alcohol use, and so on, but had strong relational connections, lived significantly longer than people who had great health habits, but who were isolated. And here's my takeaway for those of you who didn't get all that. It's better to sit around and eat Twinkies with friends than it is to be by yourself eating broccoli. That's basically the takeaway on that one. (laughs) And if you like this kind of study, I'll just note this one. This journal of the American Medical Association uh, took uh, 276 volunteers, infected them all with a virus that produces a cold. This is what they learned. They found that people with stronger emotional connections, deeper relationships, did four times better fighting off illness than those who were isolated. Those with stronger relational connections were less susceptible to colds, they shed less virus, and they produced significantly less mucus than other relationally connected subjects, which bears out the fact that, that unfriendly people, disconnected people, are just snotty. That's kind of the, the point of that whole study. And none of that may impress you. You may be saying, like, Rock, so what? But here's the so what. 
All of those studies just kind of tell us, confirm on a biological level what we know to be true. And here it is, that God made us for connection. God made us for relationship. Many of you know this verse, Proverbs 27:17. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another man. I love these words from Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up, but pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. We were made, made for relationship. To miss out that, to miss out on that, is really to miss out on the purpose for which you've been made. I believe that it is impossible to realize your potential and to serve God in the way that God wants to be served if you do that in isolation. And if, if you, there's any doubt in your mind about the validity of what I'm saying, I want you to look at the progression here of verse 16. This is just profound. We're told then who, those who fear the Lord talk with each other. And what's the result? And the Lord listened and heard. I love that. The Lord heard them. In other words, they were connected not only to each other, but they were connected to God Himself. And there's such amazing words. We're told that a scroll of remembrance was written in His, God's presence, concerning those who feared the Lord and honored His name. The scroll of remembrance is about honoring the lives, the decisions, the behavior of those who trusted the Lord and who are willing to rise above their, their circumstances, the circumstances that they didn't understand. And I've been thinking about this, you know. One of the things I, I, would, I, I wish that my wife would develop is a bad memory. You think about somebody writing a scroll of remembrance. You start thinking about all the stupid things that, that you've done along the way. And somebody just writing all of those down one at a time. And then showing those to you later. It would be like our worst nightmare. That's not what's going on here. The idea here, and this is in the words of one scholar, this is the book of the names of those who feared and honored God. Their practical seeking to honor God and to encourage each other's trust in the Lord showed that they had true faith. And their names were entered into the Lamb's book of life. Their names were contemplated by God Himself and never forgotten. This is beautiful. God says, I remember your deeds, and most importantly, I remember you. That theme, that theme is woven all throughout Scripture, that we will never be forgotten by God, that we will be remembered by God. A few examples of that. Look at this in Isaiah 49. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord had forgotten me. And here's the response. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. You are always before me. God says, I have quite literally 
burned your name, which is really represents the essence of your being. I have burned you in the palm of my hand. Psalm 103, 13. As the Father has compassion on His children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. For He knows how we're formed, and He remembers that we're but, but dust. Which is to say, God remembers how, how weak and how uh, easily led astray we are. God remembers that about us. Psalm 139, verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the, gra- the grains of sand on the seashore. You know, we talk a lot about our view of God. That's theology. We think about God as being holy, righteous, powerful. When's the last time that you sort of gave yourself to thinking about what God thinks of you? If I were to ask you, you know, just take a moment and write out the one word that comes to God's mind when He thinks about you. I wonder what that word would be. Some of, some of you would write the word failure. Some of you would write the word disgusting. Some of you would write the word ashamed. Let me tell you what God thinks about when He thinks of you. Because of the work of Jesus, here's the truth. This is what God thinks when He thinks about you. He thinks about you as one who has received grace. One who's been made alive. One who's been offered mercy. One who's completely forgiven. One who has been given eternal assurance. One who has been adopted in God's very own family. What does God think about when He thinks of you? He thinks, this is my treasured son my treasured child whom I love. I was waiting to get my hair cut a few weeks ago and I sat in the waiting room and, and uh, read the uh, Rolling Stone magazine, which doesn't usually come to my house, which just tells you how bored I was. It's either that or picking out a new hairstyle and there's not much to work with, so I opted for a Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, Madonna was being interviewed. I want you to look at what she said. Just how... How, how, people, how people are starved for significance and worth. I have an iron will, and all of my will has been devoted to conquering some horrible feelings of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. I find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life, think about this. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being inadequate and mediocre. It's always pushing me and pushing me. Because even though I become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended and probably Never will. It's a woman who has over a hundred million dollars sitting in the bank, who, whose name is known literally all over the world. And she says, I feel completely inadequate and mediocre. Here's my question this morning. How are you doing with that? 
What do you look to or whom do you look to that helps you sort out whether or not you're significant? Cars, clothes, houses, position, possessions, power, assets, approval. What is it? It's a story about the guy who spent his whole life climbing the ladder. He gets to the top and then he realizes his ladder was leaning against the wrong building. Happens every day. If I just get there, if I just get that title, if I just make that purchase, then I'll be significant. Bob Buford, whose name many of you know, wrote the book Halftime. I've heard him tell his story. This is basically what he says. You know, I was a bored rich guy. And then I met Jesus. And he's moving me from success to significance. I'm discovering a purpose for my life in, in my relationship with Jesus. God says, I, I will remember you. I, I, I am writing your, your name, your deeds, your good things in my book of remembrance. I will never forget you. And as we kind of wrap this up this morning, brothers, I'll tell you what I'm finding to be true in my own life. That while God does not have a memory problem, we do. And when I say that, I'm not talking about the fact that you forget your wife's birthday or your anniversary or your phone number or somebody else's phone number. It's something much deeper. Our problem, our problem is that we remember stuff that God wants us to forget. And we forget stuff that God wants us to remember. We, re- we remember all of our failures and all of the stupid things that we have done. And we feel all the condemnation and the guilt and the, and, the, and the self-defeat that goes with that. We remember all of that stuff. But we forget that that's exactly why Jesus came to this earth to die on the cross. We forget that. We forget that because of the work of Jesus, we are no longer under condemnation, that we have experienced the pure righteousness of God. And now whenever God sees us, He only sees us through the record and merit of His one and only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We forget that. We forget that. God says, I have a scroll of remembrance. I have recorded those who fear My name. God says, I want you to remember what's important and I want you to forget the rest. We didn't even get to this last point. Your, your inheritance is, is greatly secured by God. God says, you're, you're mine. You're a treasured possession. You are the object of compassion. That is who you are. Remember that. I want to close. i read this quickly. A piece written by a woman named Dorothy Williams. And it speaks about, it speaks about who God has made you to be, why you have value. And why you can live today with a sense of joy and confidence that he's, he really can use you. She says, all right, think about yourself. Think about what a remarkable, unduplicated, miraculous thing it is to be you. Of all the people who have ever come and gone, Eve, Moses, Cleopatra, Socrates, Joan of Arc, Abraham Lincoln, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Julia Roberts, Colin Power, Michael Jordan, Tom Cruise... Not one of them is like you. No one who has ever lived, no one who is to come, has your combination of talents, abilities, appearance, friends, acquaintances, burdens, sorrows, and opportunities. No one's hair grows exactly the way that yours does or falls out the way mine does. 
No one's fingerprints are like yours. No one has the same combination of secret inside jokes and family expressions that you know. The few people who laugh at all the same things you do don't sneeze the way you do. No one prays about exactly the same concerns that you do. No one is loved by the same combination of people that love you. No one. No one before. No one to come. You are unique. Enjoy that uniqueness. You do not have to pretend in order to seem to be like somebody else. You were never meant to be like somebody else. You don't have to lie to conceal the parts of you that are not like what you see in everyone else. You are meant to be different. And I love this phrase. Nowhere in all the history will there ever be the same things going on in anyone's mind and soul and spirit as are going on in you right now. If you did not exist, there would be a hole in creation, a gap in history, something missing from God's plan for humankind. Treasure your uniqueness as a gift that God has given only to you. Share the uniqueness. No one can reach out to others in the same way that you do. No one can speak your words. No one can convey your meaning. No one can comfort with your kind of comfort. No one can bring your kind of understanding to another person. No one can be cheerful and lighthearted and joyful in the way you can. No one can smile your smile. No one can bring the whole unique impact of you to another human being. Share your uniqueness. Let it be free to flow out among your family and friends. See the uniqueness around you and every person you meet. The collection of unique, irreplaceable beings around you now has never been available before and will not be in the same way again. And so, dear, special, irreplaceable person, receive the gift of yourself and the gift of others. Notice the gift and enjoy it. Celebrate it. And be very, very happy. God says, you are mine. You are a treasured possession. You matter. You are the recipient of truckfuls of compassion. So we asked the question, how do ordinary guys like us respond to something like that? We, we, we go out and, and we live with a sense of joy and anticipation that, that if God would do all that for us, what else do we need? What else do we need? And so let us live with that kind of confidence today and be clear about who we really are. You remember that. You forget the rest. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your enduring love for us, for loving us when we were but enemies of you. We thank you, God, for the grace that you've extended to us, not just saving us, but adopting us and bringing us into your forever family. Help us on this day to live out our true identity. Make us mindful of the subtle conniving ways that the evil one is trying to chip away at our God-given potential and our purpose and mission. Allow us on this day to live as treasured sons of the King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Have a great morning.
Marcus Baker. Thank you. 